Welcome everyone. I'm going to start since it is time, but I'm starting out on the content area of our D2L website, just so that you guys are clear about the information and resources that are, are there, that is there, that are there. Um, you should click in with your opening poll anytime that it is convenient for you. Do you see how uh, We've got material posted under lecture slides. That's where I make a PDF out of the PowerPoint we saw in class and we post that. We do it after class, not before. Because I'm usually working on the PowerPoint right up until the five minutes I come over here. Um, we also have uh, note takers in class who provide lecture notes anonymously to anybody who wants them. So these are uh, lecture notes to help those of you who might not be such good note takers so that you can free your hands and brain, if it will help, to actually listen while we're in class and then you can get your notes up later. Some people learn better if they write. If you're one of those people, please write notes as you go along. Some people, the writing interferes with the listening. If that's you, don't take notes. They'll be here, okay? We also post uh, videos of the lectures after the class. So if you miss something, you can go back and actually watch the movie. It's a, it's a bad movie, but you can watch it and find out everything that happens. So from here on out, there will be no students who come to me and say, Dr. Fountain, I missed class, or Amy, I missed class. What did I miss? Or worse yet, did I miss anything important? <laughs> I wouldn't make you come here if I didn't have something important. So if you miss class, you miss something important, but you can retrieve it. Okay. I also just posted a new announcement to our D2L homepage. Um, so if you go to the course home, the announcement is big and texty and sprawly, just as per usual. But I've done some counts of who's participating and who's not and where we are. And what I'm learning is that there's convergent evidence for the claim that there are about 25 students enrolled in this course who are not yet participating fully. Some number of those 25 probably are late ads. And you will be participating fully really soon, and I'm not worried about you. But if there are people who have been registered for the class since before start of semester, and I still don't have a clicker registration, and I don't have quiz one or two, and it looks like you might be falling off the cliff. So if you are one of those people, you're probably not because you're actually here. But you might have a friend who's enrolled in the class who you know hasn't been 
you could just like wave at them, maybe grab them by the lapels and shake them. That would be awesome. Because um, I would like us all to be getting off on the right start for the semester. Let me pull up our PowerPoint for today. And look, I found the magical incantation that allows us to see it properly. Aren't you proud? Yay! Thank you. <laughs> Do you know what it involved to find that solution? You just Google PowerPoint 2011 for Mac slideshow obligatory presenter view ACK. And then you get all the people who posted problems of this sort. And they tell you how to fix it. Okay. You know this. Ah, sorry. And you've already done it, or you're in the process of doing it. Uh, 123 people have. We should have 155. Everybody's here and participating. That number should come up to 155. My experience is that probably we'll never have all of everyone in a room together for legitimate reasons, right? There are days when you can't come to class because you're, heaven forbid, you've got pneumonia or something, you're staying home. But I'd like to see that number get closer to 155. It would be delicious if that were to happen. And you know this too. So if you're new to the class, you should jot this down. And if you're not, you should try to read the material that's here in the caption of the slide. Um, this is this is written in phonetic transcription, which is something we are going to learn. And in fact, it's one of the first things we shall learn together this week and next week. And you can tell that this is written in phonetic transcription because it's between square brackets. Linguists are geeks in sort of the same way that mathematicians are. We use many brackets, and each kind of bracket means something different. So square brackets typically means, hello, what's inside of me is in phonetic transcription. In particular, we use the International Phonetic Alphabet, which you guys all know something about because you've read, yeah? Phonetics, for beginners. So tell me what the first noise is that's represented here by the letter D. Duh. Duh. Just as you would expect as a reader and writer of English. What's meant by that crazy letter that looks like it's an A smushed together with an E? Ah. Very good. What's the letter N stand for? What sound? Mm -hmm. Lowercase i? E. So for the vowels, lowercase i, pretend you're reading Spanish and you'll get the right noise out of it. So if you speak Spanish or read Spanish or Italian, you'll be you'll be on your way to reading vowels in phonetic transcription. If you don't, you're just going to have to learn that. And then what does letter Z stand for? What sound? Right, just as you would expect. So what's that word? Danny's. Is Danny here? Hi, Danny. This is Danny's dog. So lowercase a, aw. And by the way, I've transcribed this in my dialect of English. Some of you might have a slightly different vowel in the word dog, particularly if you're from the Northeast. 
I'm going to exaggerate a northeastern accent. Accent, we all have accents. But a northeastern vowel in the word dog. And I'm going to say it dog. Dog. That's an exaggeration, right? That would be a really highly marked variety of, of uh, probably blue collar New York or something. Um, but I, I'm from the West Coast. I say dog. Dog. And that's what I've transcribed. There she is. What's the dog's name? Allie. She's very cute. She was just a puppy. And she got her head covered in mud. She's a good puppy. So, Allie, upside down W is the sound like at the beginning of the word weather. W-H-E-T-H-E-R. This is eh. So this word is? When she was a muddy, upside down B is a muddy puppy. She was muddy. What's she saying? Okay. Um, your your uh, readings, quizzes are open in D2L, and if you don't see them yet, it's because you haven't successfully completed quiz one and two. Those are prerequisite. Once you finish those successfully, you will begin to see these readings, quizzes popping up. Yes, Rosary. So if you're not yet registered for the class, just keep me posted on how your registration is going. And there are various reasons that are legitimate that we might need to extend quizzes for you. But if you have access to D2L, you should have access to quiz three. And that's due no later than midnight this Friday. So it's open now. It's obviously open book, open note. It's an individual assignment. So we don't want quiz-taking parties at which people give each other quiz answers. And in order to prevent that, or at least discourage it, these quizzes are drawn, your quiz was drawn from a bank of a bajillion questions at random taken for each of you. And they're in random order, with random order of <laughs> items. It shouldn't be all that easy to cheat. We do not want you to cheat. You won't. You are honorable, good students, correct? Yes, and you know that we're doing this in D2L, and that means it's a form of electronic surveillance of your behavior. So there, is, there are ways we can catch you if you are cheating by looking at various things, which I won't tell you what they are. So don't But do use your book and your notes. Do take your time. You can save the quiz. Enter answers, save, put it away, open it up, save more answers, put it away. But you can only hit the submit button once for reading quizzes. You only get one submission, but multiple saves and opens. It has no time limit. It has no time limit. That's correct. And it's to test your comprehension of the reading assignments particularly. So all of the questions in the reading quizzes come from the readings, not from lectures. Your exams in this class We'll test you on lecture material. Okay. okay, so that's, we're here. This is January the 23rd, Q3 there. And again, it's due at 11.59 Friday night. 
which means if you have questions about it, you can ask them in your Friday discussion section this week. Your instruction sec leader, section leader, can't tell you the answers. That would defeat the purpose. But they can help you find the right places in your notes. Richard. Quiz 3 covers the, uh, the, that's actually a good question, and it says in the beginning what material it covers. The introduction and Rickerson and Hilton essays 1 through 10 are what's covered on quiz 3. Uh, Rickerson and Hilton essays 11 through 15, I think, are covered on the next quiz. Okay, but you can always check out the front matter of the quiz. We'll tell you exactly what things are there. Okay. And then, next Friday, you'll turn in your first piece of your exciting invented language project, Zealed Notebook 1. So you should look at the instructions for that and bring questions to section on Friday. Make sense? Okay. Ah. Now I said to complete reading quiz, or I'm sorry, to complete quiz one, which is a syllabus and policy quiz successfully, you have to earn 95% or higher. And I went back and looked at some of the items to see which ones were holding some of you back from that, so we could review them in class. And this is one question that uh, seems to be hard for students, so I want us to discuss the correct answer. The question reads, attendance points are given in this class for students who regularly attend lectures and sections. Is that true or false? False. It's false. And why is it false? It's participation, not attendance. So if you're physically in class, that doesn't matter. I mean, we're happy to see you. But that's not how you get points. You get points for participating in lecture via your exciting electronic device, or in section via your whole self. This is one of those multi-select items, and this is an item that asks about adding the class late. And the item reads, if you add Ling150A after the first day of classes, which of the following statements are true for you? Check all that apply. Is it true that you are not excused from completing the required work this semester? Yes. Is it true that you are not entitled to additional makeup opportunities for work you have missed? Yes. Is it true that you are responsible for learning the material that you have missed? Yeah. Yes. And is it true that if you handle this all responsibly, your late ad should not compromise your ability to do well in the class? Yes. You'll be fine. Now, you may have missed, for example, homework one. But homework one is worth 20 points. You can earn 30 points in this class just by doing extra credit. So you are not at a deficit if you have missed something like that. So all of them are true. You should click all, all of them. Last one. Ah. So this one asks, lecture participation points are awarded only to students who come ready to interact with their clickers. That's the correct answer. Lots of times students will ask me, Oh no, I forgot my clicker. Is there any way I can still get points? And my answer will be, no, but you have knowledge, which will turn into points on quizzes and exams. So it's still better that you're here than that you're not. Okay. 
And remember, lectures come at four points a pop. You've got a thousand points for the semester. You've got five for misses for lectures. If you forget every once in a while, that's not going to be a problem. What's going to hurt students here is if you never get your clicker working, or you never register it, or you just don't bother to bring it, you're a serial not comer to lecturer. You can earn top grade, you can get in this class as a B, unless you at least earn some participation points in lecture. And there's, isn't that a sweet picture? That looks really scary, right? But it's not. This is Alexandra. Alexandra. What is she doing? Hugging her dog, whose name I don't know. Svechka. Ah, Svechka. Svechka. Yes. That is an excellent name, but not in English. Last time we met, we got this definition. What are the two key points? If, if we call something a naturally occurring human language, we mean that it is, one, used as a blank in some human society. Fill in the blank. Primary means of communication. Right? So that means that it's being used in all contexts, not just in a small subset of contexts. Primary means, means of communication in some human society and naturally as a part of speakers natural development or uh, acquired naturally as part of speakers natural development. So those are the two things we need to know about a variety to know whether or not it's an NOHL. You're making up something that should be able to be an NOHL, right? So we're going to hold you to certain standards in the, in the language you create. And those standards we're going to hold you to reflect universal properties of, of NOHLs. Remember, we also asked you to say how many languages you speak? And that was a secret way for me to get at your, your real definition in your head of language. So I think that those of you who said you spoke two languages or three languages were probably counting things like English, Spanish, and Portuguese. I don't think you were talking, you were including uh, trombone or dog, right? Although we sometimes think about music as having linguistic properties. Or we might want to think that our dog talks to us and understands language. By default, anyway, those things don't fit this category, at least not yet. <laughs> Some dogs might. And we learned last time that about 25% of you are monolingual or better, that is, speak two or more languages. You guys couldn't see the charts last time, but I wanted to share with you the things we learned. And I'm going to close this first poll and then hide it. So compare the blue bars here to the red bars. The blue bars show your assessment of whether or not your grandparents, and we're, we're being liberal about this and saying, you got four grandparents, let's take all four together. Uh, were they speakers of English as a first language? For your grandparents, 53% of you said, yes, all of them were. And 79% of you said, no, one or more of them was not a native speaker of English. 
So you see if we, uh, if we go through the generations, the percentage of native speakers of English increases, right? Um, and of course, the no's decrease. And this is very similar to what I talked to you about in terms of the three-generation rule for language shift. That we find that people who uh, immigrate to the US anyway, speaking something other than English, tend to shift to English within three generations. Um, and you guys represent, in this case, the third. Yes? So how did you count the ones that were like one yes, one no? So I counted everyone who, like there were three yes, one no, they all go in the, in the no bar, in the red. So I made it as broad as I could. Um, I wanted to also show you how you guys stack up against sort of what we know about uh, language behavior in the US based on the 2010 census. These numbers aren't exactly analogous, but it's, it's kind of an interesting comparison. Um, 80 of you said you were monolingual. About 80% of the US population reports being monolingual in English according to census. 2010. 48 of you reported being bilingual. This was, I took the one where I asked what languages you're fluent in. Um, wait. No, I combined those, but also you can speak a little of. 12% of the US population in, in census 2010 report speaking English and something else at home. So that's bilingual with English included. About 8% of the US population reported being primarily speaking a language other than English at home and not speaking English well. So those are, I will count them, they might be multilingual, but I'll count them for the sake of argument anyway, as monolingual not in English, 8%. You should know that over time that percentage has been decreasing. So we hear lots of reports in the media about the crisis of people not learning English. And what we find if we look at the data is that in fact people are learning English more and faster today than have done in the past, interestingly. Um, but there, are, there is a substantial subpopulation in the US who are not speakers of English. Now I want to ask you, I'm going to play these, these clips for you, and I want to ask you to think about the question, is what you're going to hear the same language? Does it count as English? Okay. Does it count as English, Richard? Do you think you're going to see the 48% of people that are, that are bilingual in, in class versus how we in the real world? And just by the broad university students versus the real world, not a lot of people that you can Yeah, I think that's a really good observation. We have a sampling bias in this room. University of Arizona students are likely to be very academically successful, are likely to be from a relatively affluent background, and all of those things correlate with multilingualism. So um, more so than the general population. Let me play you this, this first clip and ask you if this is English, and I'm going to open the My poll. My name is Dr. Dovit Hosbroch, Language and Information Officer at the Centre for the Scots Lead in Perth. I would like to speak about the Scots lead and its sickness to historical spearings. Firstly, what is Scots? 
In modern Scotland, Scots is a name for the Bailies, Gather Together, and is kept by the other names of Doric, Lallans, and Scotch for Bay. And going with what you bide, you might already better ken a mere Hemabut name, such as Borders, Buchan, Dundonian, Glasgow, or Shetland, to name a If people. it's English, click so one. If it's not together, English, click two. The Scots Bailies is cried. And I'm going to ask you to select from those two options, even though I know it's hard. Scots is come to a branch of the Germanic family elites, and is, like its sister tongue, Sutheran, sprung from the old Angles lead. Both Old Angles and its doctor, Scots, has been spoken in Southland in Easter Scotland, the Lawrence, for the 7th century AD. There are mentions of this lead to be fun for him. So if you haven't voted yet, please vote. One is yes, it's English. Two is no, it's not. And I'm going to queue up the next example. Interesting. What is a drink batter? <laughs> You're really not a bad person. It's the outsider that comes in and ask and ask you where the light ice is, or when you're standing right in front of it, or ask point out old panel coast sign and say, "Is this the landing coast? <laughs> what time did the four o'clock ferry leave?" <laughs> That's a poor sound word. That's what James Byron said. Yeah, I've heard oh, exactly. Again, one of the English batters on there, Yes, there's real ones. And then there are blank, blank, you just, you know. Yeah. This is a ding batter. He married a down east woman. He married a down east woman. He's from Kenosha, Wisconsin. Now, this is what we consider a ding batter. A damn ding batter. I've been here before he was born. <laughs> It doesn't matter. Ever since I can remember, somebody not from here was called a Dean Byer. All right. If you haven't voted yet, number one is yes, that's English. Two, no, it's not. And I will give you another three, two, one. <laughs> Excellent. So, for the first example, a majority of you said, yes, that's some form of English. Anybody, why? Why did you say that? <laughs> so it sounded like a dialect. It was labeled Scottish. What else? Being a native English speaker, I could understand most of what he said. You could understand most of what he said, could you? Okay. Yeah, Chris. I've actually traveled a lot, and I've actually heard what you know the Irish, the Irish language and the Scottish language. Right. So, so, so this is this was an example of of something called Scottish or Scottish English. You should know that the native language of Scotland isn't that. The native native language of Scotland is called Scots Gaelic, and this is historically at least. It's in the same family as English, and it is a matter of active scholarly debate whether or not that variety counts as a dialect of English or as a separate language. Interesting, right? Because if you think about the political affiliation, you know that Scotland is part of the UK, and 
that as an English sort of identity, and you could hear a lot of similar words. But what was different? What did you hear that was different? Sorry? Really heavy accent, and what does that mean? The, the, some of the sounds were different, right? He had a ra, and he had an abut. He had different vowels sometimes, yeah. Uh, some of the uh, terminology he uses, like uh, kin. Right. You know, it's like uh, a lot of them, like Irish and Scottish, they, uh, 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 they use it for a means of understanding. Right. So there's different these different words, different terminology, or different. I'll call them lexical items. Different lexical items. Go ahead. But grammatically, it's kind of all the same pattern. That's why that's why I agree with you in the same family. Right. So so so. There was a, there were a majority of you who said yes, that's a kind of English. There was a substantial minority of you who said it's not. And I want you to all to be comforted in the fact that about 50% of the scholars of language believe with the majority of you guys, and about 50% would argue otherwise. Dude, how could there be controversy about such thing? It must mean that the definition of language versus dialect is not 100% objective, right? What about this example? 90% of you said, yeah, those guys are speaking English. Were there any passages in there that you couldn't understand what they were saying? Oh, I totally mean there were like whole exchanges. I could get the sense of it. But picking out words, kind of hard, right? And again, a thick accent, would you say? Maybe not quite as dissimilar from the variety we're speaking now as the first clip, but still some different consonant sounds, some different vowel sounds, kind of a different melody or rhythm to the speech. So let's think about what it means. <laughs> Have you seen the clip of the slow lords with the tiny umbrella? You should Google the video, Slow Loris Tiny Umbrella. Um, ah, sorry. A lot of us want to make the distinction between the terms languages and dialects of the same language based on this criterion, criterion of mutual intelligibility of varieties. So on the, the criterion of mutual intelligibility, that means if, say, I'm speaker A and you're speaker B, I talk to you in my variety and you talk to me in yours. If we can successfully understand each other most of the time, then those varieties are mutually intelligible. If we can't, then they're not. So if I were to, to speak, um, if I were to say something like, uh, 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 you're maybe not going to understand much, except the noun slow loris, which I borrowed. So in that case, variety A and variety B are not mutually intelligible. But the problem, there are multiple problems with defining language versus dialect that way. Um, one of the problems is that we find examples of dialectal variation, something we really want to call differences between dialects, 
where, at least in some cases, there's mutual unintelligibility. So you can get that Scots English speaker to say sentences that I'll bet you you couldn't understand what he's talking about. Because the lexical differences are sufficient, combined with the sound differences, that you won't be able, as a speaker of American English, you won't be able to necessarily understand it. Um, English as it is spoken in mainland China is very different than English as it is spoken in the US. English as it is spoken in the US is somewhat different than English as it's spoken in Great Britain, which is where it first emerged as a language of its own. So sometimes dialects are mutually unintelligible. Um, then there are cases like Chinese. The varieties spoken on mainland China, the local varieties, are many of them are mutually unintelligible with each other. In fact, several of them come from different language families altogether. They're not even related. However, they're all referred to as dialects of Chinese. And that's because China is one political entity. So if varieties are spoken in that area, that are native to that area, they're all going to be referred to as the Chinese language or the Chinese languages. Chinese dialects also share a writing system with each other. So if speakers write, then it kind of feels like more the same language. Uh, are the, is, there, is there anybody, I'll get Joanne, is there anybody here who speaks uh, Spanish? Yes. When you hear somebody speaking Italian, pretty much, uh, Italian speakers, anybody? No? So Italian and Spanish are varieties that are roughly mutually intelligible, but because there's a political boundary between them, we call them different languages. We have that question. Well, I was just curious, the writing system for the Chinese uh -huh. dialects, if they write the grammar the same? Mm. I mean, they speak differently in the dialects, but is the writing the same? Yeah, so the, the writing, Chinese writing system is a phonetic. It's a, a character equals roughly a word. And so, do they use the same grammar is actually a really complicated question that I don't know for sure the whole answer to. Um, but I do know that if they communicate, you can communicate successfully in writing cross dialect boundaries in China much better than in spoken language. So what is the difference then between a language and a dialect of a language? Well, uh, there's a famous quote for you. A language is a dialect with an army and a navy. The distinction between language and dialect is a socio-political distinction. It's not a linguistic distinction. And this is very important because, it's important for us to understand in a class like this, uh, because the term dialect has acquired stigma, at least for some people. So if you tell people, oh, you're speaking a dialect, some people think that means, and some people intend it to mean, you're speaking some broken, less important, less good variety of a language. But to a linguist, we all speak in dialects. Every variety is a dialect. And you know, then we, we want to respect people's social and cultural and political and historical distinctions that they draw. So if everybody, if, China says these are all Chinese language and their dialects. Linguists go right on. 
And if Spain and Italy say, we speak different languages, we go right on. <laughs> and mutual intelligibility isn't necessarily a reliable indicator. And you see that the difference between varieties that you might think of as dialects of the same language is continuous, not discrete. Right? So where on that continuum do we want to draw the line between two languages? Well, to some extent, it turns out to be a little bit arbitrary. So when we try to count languages or count dialects, it's an inherently squishy and error-prone process. And it is controversial because it's wrapped up in social and political and historical kinds of things. So in this class, we know what NOHLs are. There are a lot of them. But it's also important to acknowledge that each NOHL, like English, for example, is really a collection of varieties that are different from each other. Um, and we use names, like we use the term dialect, to indicate if it's a regional dialect, the variety that people are likely to speak if they live for a long time in a certain geographic area. So those folks from North Carolina, remember the guy said, you have to be born here or it doesn't count? Dude, that's a regional dialect. Um, my regional dialect is of the Pacific Northwest. And it is not perhaps as pronounced as in terms of differing from what I shall call the standard academic American English standard um, as maybe the North Carolina dialect is. But it's just a dialect. I have an accent too, and so do you. Right? It's just what we compare each other to. A sociolect is a way of speaking that we acquire not necessarily just because of where we are, but because of our socioeconomic status, our social position, our identity. So um, some of you will be fluent in a sociolect that is identified with kind of an urban, hip, cool identity. This will be a sociolect that I do not have. I cannot eat. I'm weak. Um, but if you go to a hip-hop club, for example, you, are, you will hear English being used that's different. right? That's a sociolect. Um, idiolects. Your idiolect is the way of speaking that's specific to you as an individual. You call your mom on the phone, and before you say too much, she knows it's you, maybe because of the sound of your voice, but also just because of how you tend to say things. Right? We all have a little bit different way of talking, and we refer to that as an idiolect. Regional dialects, sociolects, and varieties all count, I'm sorry, regional dialects, soci sociolects, and idiolects all count as linguistic varieties. So if I want to be agnostic about whether I'm saying this is a language, or this is a dialect, or this is a sociolect, I'll just call it a variety. And none of them are simple or deficient. If they've gone through a human wet neural processor, a brain, through human language acquisition, they all come out with a grammar. And the grammars are, I'm going to make this very controversial and shocking claim, but I think I can defend it. The grammars are functionally equivalent. So functionally equivalent. 
Why are all the varieties of English called English? That's a socio-political, economic, historical fact. I don't know, but you'll learn about that in your other classes, right? It's to some extent, extent linguistically arbitrary. Yeah. That is, I'm going to say, all of these varieties, if they've been acquired through the natural process of language acquisition by humans, for use as an NOHL, okay, that's what it takes. If you do that, you will be functionally equivalent with every other variety that's done that. However, different varieties are treated differently in our social lives. So there are some varieties, uh, they're sometimes called prestige varieties, that, for example, in this context, are, are viewed as respectable, respectful, good, in your writing for this class, we ask you to use a variety called standard academic American English. It's got certain rules that aren't true of all varieties of English. It's the prestige variety for this context. If I were to speak that other variety I was referring to that you probably can use if you go to a hip hop club, in this context, that would be stigmatized, right? Stigmatized meaning it's viewed as having less prestige, less respect, maybe indicating that the speaker is not smart or something. Crazy. It's crazy because we know that really smart people can master stigmatized and prestige varieties equally well and switch very naturally among them. But we tend to associate certain varieties in certain contexts with respect or not. If I were talking this way in your hip hop club with you, I might get hit. <laughs> right? That's a stigmatized variety in that context. They're all characterizable by sets of rules, grammars. Grammars, that's going to be an important word this semester. We spend a fair amount of time in the introductory section of the text talking to you about that word. And here's this term, functional equivalent. They are all functionally equivalent in the sense that if you're an NOHL, you can do everything any other NOHL can do. So it is not the case that there's some thought that's possible for humans to have that's expressible only in English and nothing else. right? Or not expressible in English, but only expressible in some other language. Anything that can be expressed in one can be expressed in all. However, and if you guys are multilingual, you will know this part to be true. The relative efficiency with which different languages express different notions changes, right? So there's some things that English is just really well tuned to communicating very efficiently you know, with one word for a particular context. Whereas in, in uh, Central Siberian Yupik, it takes you a whole paragraph to get to that concept, but you can get there, right? So it's the efficiency that differs, not the ability. And we're going to ask you to assume that your NOHL that you're making up is functionally equivalent to everything else, which means that you don't get to say at the beginning of your project, as students are wont to do, I came across this society which speaks a very simple and primitive language. 
No, they don't. That's not plausible. No human society speaks a simple and primitive language. Languages have complexity in different areas from each other. Right? The efficiency varies, but not their overall complexity. All right. And we need to know what these guys are built of, these naturally occurring human languages. This is Claire's. Claire, are you here? Claire's how friend finds phones. Phones? What, should, what is she talking about? Amusing. If you're a spoken human language, you're built of speech sounds. That's the smallest analyzable unit. That's where we're starting. Those speech sounds are called phones, just like telephone, except these are, these are phones. They don't mean anything by themselves. Let me give you a, um, a phone from English. Doesn't mean anything. In order to make something meaningful, I combine it with other stuff. Right. We do have some phones in English that work also as meaningful units, like the phone I, which can be this part of your anatomy, or it can be the first person subject pronoun, I. That's really only one speech sound, but it's also a word. So every word in every spoken language is built of at least one phone. But the phones themselves don't mean anything. So I, that's a word, my eyeball. Um, but if I find the same sound in the word thigh, there's no meaning of eyeball in the word for the upper part of leg, right? That I just freely combines with other phones to make these that are meaningful. These phones are combined according to a set of rules and principles. Some of the rules and principles are language specific, others are universal. If you are assigned language, you, you have units that are the equivalent of phones. It's just that they're not sounds. They're hand shapes, basic patterns of movement. Um, there's, there's four sets of signed language phones. For our class, we're going to be spoken language ocentric, so I'm wanting you to invent a spoken human language. But you should know that sign languages work just in the same way. It's a different mode, but not a different set of structures. Okay, now I want you to think about phones, and I'm gonna ask you to vote on what you hear after you hear this dude. So first, I want you to watch and listen. Watch and listen and see what you get. And these are your choices. So you'll vote one if you hear da. You're going to hear him repeat the same thing over and over again. If it's da, one. If it's ga, vote two. If it's ba, vote three. If it's something not of none of the above, vote four. OK, let me have you play this. Ba 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 ba. I'll play it one more time and then vote. Ba 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 ba. Excellent. So take a vote, and then I'm going to ask you to listen. Ba 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 ba. Ba 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 ba. Ba 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 
But next time I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. Okay, so everybody, please vote in the next three, two, one. Pay no attention to that. Okay, now now eyes closed, but same same set. Are you ready? Everybody, close your eyes. Ba 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 ba. Let's one more time. Eyes closed. Ba 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 ba. Okay. Oh no! I didn't let you vote yet. Please vote what you heard. <laughs> that was so rude of me. <laughs> All right. What did you hear? With your eyes closed, someone shout out what you heard. Here's what you're here's what's going on. In the first trial, I'll show you this at the beginning of the hour next time. Most of you voted for for dog. What you're hearing is a guy saying, ba, 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 ba. You're right in the second trial. But what you're seeing is a picture of a guy saying, ga, ga, with a G, ga. Your brain takes the visual information from ga and combines it with the sound information from ba and gives you ga, which I'm going to just tantalize you by telling you is halfway between ga and ga. Pretty cool, right? So as we're paying attention to sounds, I want us to think about how it is we're actually perceiving and understanding what we're hearing. And I will see you guys again on Wednesday.